Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Dr. Aviva Goldstein living in Israel, who specializes in gap year students in Israel. And I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. This interview was first inspired by one of our listeners. We had a discussion on the discussion group on WhatsApp, and we had toxic positivity. We had so many different things that came up. Your name was mentioned. Maybe we should interview Dr. Aviva. And then when I reached out to you, you said, well, we could go a lot deeper than just toxic positivity. <laughs> Let's talk about all the stuff that goes on in the gap year in Israel, because that's what I specialize in. I thought, what a great idea, because I have loads of questions for you. <laughs> in a few words, can you just introduce yourself and let everyone know what your background is? Sure. Awesome. Um, so I actually come from the world of education. I started as a teacher and I really loved it and I was really passionate about it, but I always found that I was drawn to like the whole child part of education, whether it was a child or, or a high schooler. Like I was very drawn to the psychology side of education, of development, of cognition and emotions and all that stuff. Several degrees, an undergrad, a master's, a doctorate, fast forward a million years. We moved to Israel like 11 years ago, something like that. And when I came, I was almost done with my doctorate. And I remember feeling like totally inside out, upside down professionally. I knew in my soul, this is where I wanted to be. I knew this is where I wanted my children to grow up. But professionally, I had no idea what I was going to do because I had always been in the world of North American Jewish education. I had the safety of being under the umbrella of a school and the haskama of some, you know, administrator saying like, yeah, she's good. And I had no idea what to do because the school system here is definitely not better or worse. It's just fundamentally different. And I could not imagine finding myself in the system. And I remember I was catching about this once to a very close mentor of mine, Dr. David Palkovitz, who's just like amazing. And it was actually his idea. He really pushed me. He said, Aviva, get over yourself, basically, not in those words. Whatever you were going to do in a school in America, just do privately in Israel. Like you were going to deal with the homeschool stuff and the kids that are slipping through the cracks and the kids that are struggling with different things, whatever. He's like, so just do that. And at first I was like, you're crazy. Like, what are you even talking about? Massive, massive imposter syndrome for sure. That even like today, all these years later, I definitely still have. But that's what I ended up doing. Like, thanks to him, thanks to Rona Novik, who's another very close mentor and friend of mine. And so I have a private practice here where I do individual and family counseling. I specialize in adolescence. And as you said, about 80-ish percent of my practice is yeshiva seminary students, gap year students of American kids that are not from. And I also work with, you know, local Israeli kids, Israeli families, Israeli parents, Anglo families. I think I hit the jackpot. I think I have the best job on the face of the earth. I love what I do. I feel very, very lucky. And I feel very, very humbled is like so overused at this point. But I really do feel humbled that like people just trust me with their stuff all day, every day. I look at that as like a really sacred responsibility that I take very seriously. And I love it. And on the side, I do some teaching. I teach in a bunch of the programs here, the, the gap year programs here. I work with American schools. Before COVID, I was traveling to schools in the States. I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that this year we'll go back to that. Can you tell us the demographics that you work with? Do you have clients or patients from all over the Jewish from spectrum? Or do you have extra knowledge in one particular sect? 
look, anybody who's coming to Israel for the year is automatically in a certain place, meaning they have some sort of Jewish identity, wherever they fall on the observance or affiliation spectrum. But I definitely work with like totally, totally not from at all. I work with Hasidish and tights, like the whole and, and everybody in between. And, and there's something I think like, maybe this is cheesy, but there's something I think very cool about the fact that like a lot of them are sitting down and talking about similar things. And it's kind of like, yeah, you went to this kind of high school and yeah, you're thinking about this in your future. But like the struggle that you're trying to digest right now is really similar to somebody that on the surface doesn't look like you at all. But there's like a lot of, I don't know. Stage like, similarity. Yeah, and universality and, and I don't know, like a shared humanity kind of thing, which I, which I think is really cool. I think therapists share that all in common in a way. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah, everyone's could human be. and they come and they talk about those same problems. And, and we all have stuff. That's like my, my tagline. Like if I can make a bumper sticker and put it on every car across the earth, it would just say like, everyone's got stuff. Like your stuff might be heavier than mine. My stuff might be sillier than yours. But like, we've all got stuff. Someone yesterday told me quietly, you know, because I, I go to therapy and I said, <laughs> well, doesn't everyone? Or shouldn't everyone? Like, why are you watching this? We're in a private. No one's around us. If you had to classify the unique challenges that Jewish gap year adolescents, students have when they arrive in Israel, what would they be? Obviously, I'm going to like cast a really wide net and there are exceptions to every rule. And this is definitely not empirical. Like, it's totally, totally anecdotal. But one of the things that I see a lot is sort of they come as kids and the assumption is that they're going to leave as adults. A lot of them have had really, really wonderful childhood experiences, really fantastic educational experiences. And I think coming from a place of real love and commitment, haven't had to have a whole lot of responsibilities and independence. Parents and other caring adults have done a lot for them over the course of their 17, 18 years. And a lot of them come and are like, I can't do anything for myself. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do anything. And so like the, the most common one is you'll have somebody here in Jerusalem calling their mom or their dad in America to make a doctor's appointment for them here in Israel. On the certain, you're kind of like, okay, that's crazy. Like grow up, right? Obviously there's, a, there's depth to it. There's a reason. Like they haven't been taught you can do these things for yourself. You can learn how to do them. If you make a mistake, You'll figure it out. Or you'll call the office back and reschedule whatever it is. But I think that's probably one of the most common ones when they arrive is just figuring out, like, how do I do this, like, independence thing? Give me some more examples of some independence things. Some of the programs provide all of the meals. Some of the programs provide some meals. And even the ones that provide all the meals, not everybody wants to eat what's being served for lunch or dinner. There are a lot of students that have no idea how to make themselves dinner. They don't know how to buy the groceries. They don't know how to know, is this the right quantity? They don't know what kitchen gadgets they need or don't need. And that's a big struggle. And obviously it's a slippery slope, which I assume we'll get to at a certain point later. But, it, you know, any kind of like food stress can be concerning for 17, 18, 19 year olds, guys and girls. And that's definitely a stigma that I think we should probably get to that it's, it's cross genders, food and body stuff. But so food preparation, laundry is a big one. Making plans for Shabbos. And everybody responds to those challenges very differently. Like, I know one person who was so anxious about, and I don't mean clinically anxious, I mean, just like kind of 
you know, worried about not having plans that she literally planned out her first three and a half months worth of Shabbos plans because she was so nervous. Like, what if I don't have plans? And then she felt locked in because she already made these plans and now she has these friends and they want to go to their, I don't know, sisters, cousins, aunts, brothers, neighbors, whatever. And then there are other people that are like, oh, shoot, it's Thursday night and I have no plans. I don't know where to go. You know, so that's definitely a big one. This is something that they'll express and their parents will say, go get therapy for this. Or do people come to you already with more significant issues? Oh, good question. So I don't do anything clinical. I have no clinical training. I have no clinical background. So that means in practice, I don't make diagnoses and I don't treat specific things. So if you come to me with anxiety, we'll do all the social, emotional, behavioral stuff around anxiety, but I don't treat anxiety. I'm not trained for that. I'm not qualified for that. And so sometimes someone will come to me having already had a therapist or a psychologist or a counselor or a something over the course of their lives, middle school, high school, and they just kind of want somebody as like a placeholder over the course of the year. So we'll do that. Or someone will come to me a month or two into the year and say like, oh shoot, I didn't realize how hard this was going to be. Or, oh shoot, I'm realizing I had all this stuff that I probably should have talked through before, but I didn't. And now it's coming up. I I will tell you there's a month-ish left of the programs here. And literally today, two new people called to say, I know there's only like three or four weeks left, but like I need somebody to talk to. There's a, a definite range of why they come when they come, some of it is at the encouragement of their parents. Some of it is sort of like with their parents' hesitation. There's definitely a difference. It just interestingly, what you were saying before about the person, you know, whispering, I'm going to therapy. Um, <laughs> I, I, I won't ask you how old that person was, but there one sort of interesting, significant thing I think about, I hate to say this generation because it makes me sound like I'm 400 years old, which I definitely don't think I am, but like this generation of 17, 18, 19 year olds, so many things have been so normalized for them that were not normalized when we were growing up. That as a few years ago, I'd gotten to one of the seminaries where I was teaching on a weekly basis. It was like a regular class. I'd gotten to the classroom a few minutes early. And I'm getting my computer set up and, you know, making all my copies, whatever. And two friends came in also early and they were talking about, I think they wanted to meet a friend of theirs from high school who was at a different program. Okay, can we go on Tuesday? No, on Tuesday, I have therapy. So I can't go on Tuesday. Can we go on Wednesday? Oh no, on Wednesday, you have therapy. Shoot, okay. And it was just like so normal as if they were talking about the dentist. Like, and there was no like, oh, this is embarrassing. It was, it was literally like, oh no, like I have stuff. So I go to the therapist and like, that's it. And they didn't even know I was listening. They just happened to walk into the classroom and I was there. But, you know, for a lot of them, it's like, on the one hand, they're the generation of like massive oversharing. On the other hand, one of the benefits of that is a lot of them are like willing and comfortable about opening up and talking about stuff. I want to address some of the more juicier topics like addiction, eating disorders or disordered eating. I want to talk about potentially same-sex relationship exploration. I'm just assuming it happens based on some of the interviews we've done as well as knowing people and hearing of their stories. And then I would also want to talk about unhealthy relationships and attachments to teachers and rabbis. Okay. Just, just a few light, just a few light topics. <laughs> so if I forget anything, I'm putting this on to you as well. And then share it. if we could end with, I'm just putting it out there, but if we could have some sort of guide or checklist for parents to be able to ask themselves, is the gap year the right fit for my child or not? And maybe there are some qualifications that parents can go through these checklists or questions and figure out, is this really a good fit for my kid based on their experiences or upbringing or personality? And maybe we should be more vocal about 
maybe gap year is not a good fit for the kids and normalize that as well. Anyway, so let's take it away. What should we start with? One of the things I would say, and and I see this with the individual clients I work with, I see this in the students that I teach, whether it's on a regular basis or I'll do like a one-time thing or a two-time thing in a different program. And I see it from working with parents and faculty and students in schools in the States. I think there's like a shift happening, but there's still something holding on to this sort of old school feeling of like, we shouldn't talk about it, first of all, because it's a little bit uncomfortable and awkward. But also because if we talk about it, we're going to expose our kids to ideas that they may not be thinking about. And then it might pique their interest and their curiosity. And then God forbid, lead them down like a dangerous path on on any of the topics that you just read. And I think that that's like a really important idea for us to be talking about as individuals and as a community, because every piece of evidence that we have from the Jewish world and not Jewish world, like real data, like actual research, tells us that that's not true. If you talk about addiction and drinking, kids don't say, oh, I should start drinking. If you talk about LGBTQ, homosexuality, or even straight sexuality, it's not like everybody's hopping into bed. That's not how it works. And I hope I'm right that there's a growing sensitivity to the idea that like, we actually need to talk about it and we need to talk about it in really honest, even if it's difficult and awkward ways. Because what happens when kids, who are on their way to adulthood don't have information or have massive gaps of information and they only have pieces of it, that's when they're actually the most vulnerable because they have like a a fetzy picture. They have half of a view. They don't have the whole sense of what's going on. And so give some examples. So like a silly example, just as like, you know, nothing that's like scary like this, but a lot of parents are you know, now worried, uh, separating it from gap years and Yiddishkeit and all that stuff and adolescents. A lot of parents are now worried about like sugar, let's say, right? And so because we want our children to be healthy and we want ourselves to be healthy and want to have healthy homes, there's like a total restriction or near restriction of sugar in the house. There's no candy. There's no this, no that. And on the one hand, you want to say like, great, like why should we expose our kids to things that we know are probably not so good for them? The problem is that it actually doesn't completely shield them from sugar. They're going to go to a friend's house. They're going to go to a birthday party. There's going to be a snack in school, whatever it is. And either they are going to fall in love with it or they're not going to fall in love with it. That's totally up to the individual kid and their own science and biology and whatever. But the parent's act of saying no sugar does not prevent the child from accessing sugar. And so lahavzil, but I think it's sort of an innocuous example to talk about addiction and drugs and smoking and sex and alcohol and all these different things, because by just not acknowledging it, we are actually not protecting our kids from it. If anything, we're putting them more at risk. So when someone comes to you, where are they holding usually? Is it like, so I got drunk and blocked out and this happened? Or is it like, oh, I'm thinking about this. (laughs) Maybe I should try it out and I'm coming to you for guidance. Like, at what point are you seeing people and what's happening? What's going on? The theory is great, but I want the details of what's happening. So I'll give you an example. One of the schools where I teach in, I teach a course. It's a weekly course for a whole semester. It's called Building Healthy Relationships or Building Great Relationships, something like that. And the idea is that I took all kinds of materials that we have from contemporary research and all kinds of stuff that we have, primary sources and original texts from Judaism, sort of writ large. And we talk about relationships and my relationship, it's in a seminary. So my relationship as a daughter, my relationship as a sister, my relationship as a friend, my relationship to a Kaddish Baruch my relationship with myself. 
And then obviously it, it moves forward. My relationship in dating, my relationship with the spouse. And the way I teach is I don't take attendance at the beginning of the class. I think it's like, as they say, it's like a waste of time. You sit there and you go through the list. The way I take attendance is that every class at the end of class, I have an exit ticket that I've printed out in advance and every student writes their name on it. And there's a question. There's always like an open-ended question. It's not a right or wrong. I'm not grading you on this, but it's a way for me to check myself. Did I teach what I was hoping to teach? And if not, I'll, I'll recorrect next week. And it's also just a really easy way for students to ask me a question if they don't want to ask it in front of everybody. So they'll scribble something. So the first year I was teaching this class, I remembered at the end of every class, I would collect the exit tickets and there would be a question like, are we going to talk about dating? And I was like, yes, of course, we're going to get to dating. And the next week it would be like, are we going to talk about Nagia? Like I have questions about Nagia. Yes, 100% we're going to get there. Every week they were getting like more and more, I don't want to say impatient, racy, but yeah. And finally, I realized all of these are just euphemisms. They just want to talk about sex. They just want to play talk about sex. And every week when they would ask me these questions, I would go to the Minahel of the school, the Rev. I won't say his name because I don't have his permission. And I would say to him, like, you tell me what are the institutional red lines? Like, I don't do awkward. It's like not my thing. I'm comfortable with anything. But if you tell me in this school, we will not talk about X, Y, Z, I won't go there. I just need to know what are the boundaries. And to his credit, and he should get a lot of points for this in Shemai, because I think he will have a lot of support because of this. To his credit, he said, if they're asking these questions within the context of a Torah institution, we owe it to them to give them answers in the context of a Torah institution. And I said, so what are you saying? And he said, there are no red lines. I was like, really, there are no red lines? And he's like, no, if they're asking, answer. Obviously, in a respectful way. Obviously, in like, you know, a manner that's reflective of the fact that this is a Torah institution. But of course, if they're asking a question, why would we not answer it? And to him, it was like, duh. But I don't take that as a duh because I know how many institutions would not. And so in that, I've been teaching this class now for years and years and years. And like, there are nights. It's Thursday night. So everyone's already sort of in a different vibe than let's say on like a random Tuesday morning. But there are nights where it gets like, you know, there are lots of giggles. It gets kind of racy. But, but I make a commitment to them at the beginning of the year that if there's anything that they want answered, I promise to try. And if I don't know the answer, I will try to find the answer. I will try to find somebody that will know the answer. But there's no such thing as the question that can't be asked because that's not what we're about. And so I'd say sexuality is one of those really big areas. A lot of them, I would say, wherever they fall on the spectrum of affiliation and observance and education, really wherever they fall, I think one truth that we can probably say for the vast majority of gap year students is that they really know a lot of pieces about many more topics than we may assume. And at the same time, they're missing many pieces about those topics. So they might know a whole lot more about sexuality, let's say, than their parents might assume. But there are also really huge gaping holes in their knowledge about sexuality. And so it's sort of filling in the gaps for them both like from a contemporary researchy, science-y perspective to like, what did the Torah say about X, Y, Z and sort of correcting assumptions and filling in missing pieces. The same thing goes, I think, for drinking. There are a lot of them that come to Israel having already experienced either drinking themselves in high school or seeing their friends drink. Is that equal between boys and girls or boys drink more than girls? I don't know. I don't have any data that I could base that on. I think the assumption is boys drink more than girls. I don't know that that's a safe assumption. And that's also part of like sort of breaking down the taboo and the stigma is like, you know, there's some things that are just for the boys and some things that are just for the girls, but most of this stuff 
I think there's a lot of overlap. And there are some kids that will show up really naive about drinking and they might be exposed to something while they're here during the year. And also we can't forget there are kids that are coming here who have seen addiction in their own homes. And so when we say sha, 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 let's not talk about addiction because either it's scary or it's upsetting or we don't want to introduce them to something. A lot of them know people with addiction. And so the more we don't talk about it, first of all, the more they feel isolated, like there's this huge thing that is going on in my life that nobody is acknowledging and nobody's talking about, but also they might have questions and they might want to understand it and they might want to just see it from different perspectives or from different adults weighing in or whatever it might be. And so that's why I think really talking about it, not using euphemisms and not sort of dancing around subjects, but like really talking about these hard things, I think matters because they're going to find answers somewhere. And if we're not the ones giving them the answers, we can't guarantee the accuracy. And so there's something kind of, you know, I'm not like a big fear monger person, but I do think there's something scary about knowing that my kid might be out there learning something that's not actually true, but because I'm not talking about it, they don't know that it's not true. And then they're going to go through life with a certain truth in their mind that's just not based in reality. Like, I think that's, that's kind of unsettling a little bit. Anyone at that age and stage is looking for connection, relationships, and everything in between. And then I would assume most of the from boys and girls are not in relationships. Maybe I'm wrong. But the ones and I want to talk about that dynamic, but I also want to talk about the, the obsession of the people who are not in relationships. They, they idolize and start obsessing and loving their teachers or rabbis, both female and male. I have no idea what goes on in yeshivas. I'm assuming there's also this obsession with your rebbe or your rabbi. And they spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time, even if there is a glass there's lots of that attention and relationship and some of them become very unhealthy dynamics. So can we address those concerns that parents may have? Definitely. I don't want to say that most of the modern Orthodox, however, we're defining that guys, girls, whoever are not in a relationship. Because again, I don't have the statistics in front of me and I'm like a data nerd. I'm sorry. I'm like such a stickler for it, but I think it's not great for us to go for me, at least to speak on assumptions, a lot of them are in relationships. I meant to say not everyone. Right. I wasn't. No, of course, say, of course, okay. of course. I'm not calling you out. God forbid. <laughs> oh, my God. Not at all. No, no, no. I'm saying like for myself, I'm like such a numbers nerd. A lot of them will come in with high school boyfriend, high school girlfriend, whatever it might be, and saying like, don't tell me to break up with them. I'm never going to break up with them. And like some around Hanukkah, they're like, you know, I think maybe we should break up and focus on my learning or whatever. You know, like everybody goes through their own. Stages, but relationships is definitely an important and interesting thing to look at and to think about. And same sex stuff, also, I think we should get to, like you mentioned, I think it's a really important thing. But the idea about the faculty members, the teachers, the Rebbies, the Rebbitsons, I could be wrong. Like for sure, for sure, I could be wrong. But I get the feeling that it's different now than it was 20 years ago. That's the sense I get. And what I mean by that is I think there's a lot more, first of all, there's a lot more involvement by the parents. 20 years ago, you would go to Israel and your parents would know whatever you told them when you called them once or twice a week on the phone, right? Or God forbid, like sent them a letter. Now, not only are a lot of them speaking to their parents multiple times a day, but they're FaceTiming. So the parent can see how does she look? Is she making eye contact? Is she wearing this? Is she wearing that? Right? Like all sort of the external signs of things. And so I think there's a lot more parental involvement than there used to be. Litov and not, meaning for better and for worse. I think they're, they're both ends of that. 
there's a lot more awareness on the side of the mechanchim themselves, on like the educational staff, whatever the titles are. Some will keep their heads in the stands and are not interested in learning, you know, what are today's best practices and what's appropriate, what's not in today's standards. But I think a lot of them are really much more aware than they used to be. And one of the reasons I think this is true is that it used to be that when you were dealing with something, working on something, thinking about something hard, whatever it was, you would go to your Hamish teacher's house for Shabbos or you'd go to your mashkicha for Shabbos. And you would stay up until four o'clock in the morning on a Friday night and you would, you know, sort of spill your guts to the teacher and she would listen and maybe give advice and maybe give guidance. And then she'd check in on you again a few days later. And that was like the thing. And I know from myself, the vast majority of referrals I get is from Yeshiva Seminary staff members, meaning they're now saying, I'm not qualified for this and I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm really good at teaching Chamesh, let's say. I may even be really good about talking to her about whether or not she should break up with her high school boyfriend and the implications, or what are the ideas she's going to go home in terms of her relationship with her parents. Meaning it's not like they can't talk about anything other, other than Chamesh, but I think there's a much more fidelity to people staying in their lanes now than there used to be. And the professional mental health community here in Jerusalem, and I'm filling all the blanks of all the different degrees and titles, it's a really, really nice, warm community. Like, I feel really good about my colleagues. It's not like icky and competitive. We often refer to each other. And it's one of the conversations that I've had with a lot of my colleagues that they've noticed. Obviously, there's always somebody egregious that's crossing a line and, you know, was putting themselves somewhere where they shouldn't have been and saying something they really had no authority to say. But I, I think a lot of us are finding that their educational professionals are much more aware of what they do and what they don't do or what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. And so I'm hoping that that's just sort of one example of a healthier culture being breeded here in terms of the relationships and what we go to each other for and what we rely on each other for. Again, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule and there are always going to be institutions that are a little bit behind. I think, again, I could be wrong. I'm saying that a million times, but I think that it's a healthier system than it used to be. I don't know. Maybe that's the optimist in me. <laughs> if therapy is totally accepted now, instead of going to teacher, you're going to. Right. Let's go to the same sex dynamic. I don't know what else okay. to call it. So let me give you some background. We had a bisexual woman on our LGBT series. And she talked about how her one goal when she went to seminary was to focus on her learning and not fall in love with anyone. And she did. And I got a few private comments saying how that's totally normal for girls, at least. I don't know if they were extending that for boys to explore at that age doesn't mean she was bisexual or lesbian, which meant that either they know personally people who were involved and who decided they're straight after that. The point is that there's a certain amount of sexual energy going on and they don't have access to the opposite sex. So it's happening out of an experimental, almost no choice, no options, like in jail or prison <laughs> type. Okay, so tell me if I'm wrong. Let's let's take this away. Okay. Again, because I'm a statistics nerd, we don't have great numbers on this specific population. What we do know is that the numbers that we do have about just the Orthodox population in general 
are really, really in line with the non-Orthodox or non-Jewish population. Meaning, it's not like, oh, I'm from, so I can't be gay. It, it doesn't work that way. And so there might be a lot of people that are closeted. There might be a lot of people that don't realize that's what's going on. There may be a lot of people that are trying to figure it out. But just because you have a yarmulke and success or just because you're wearing long skirt tights doesn't dictate what's going on inside you. We just, we, we just know it doesn't work that way. We also know that this age, 17, 18, 19, 20, is an age of a lot of sexual curiosity and exploration. It's one of the reasons why there are a lot of sources in Gemara, Mishnah, we're all different kinds of places to talk about that being when people would get married, sort of like matches up with like both nurture and nature. And it's a time when exactly like you're saying, there's a lot of emphasis on connection and opening up emotionally and figuring out who I am and, and making those connections with people around you and finding inspiration about that. Does it happen? Yeah, of course it happens. Is it all sort of like nasty and gross and like everybody just wants to get it on? No. Like the vast majority of at least the ones I know about and the ones I know about from other people are like just as emotionally driven as, you know, the cutesy pie boy and girl that, you know, are walking through the Rova not holding hands and they want to go get a nice coffee together. Like it's not that all of a sudden if you're Somewhere in the LGBTQ world, all you want to do is get it on. It's not. My question is different. Yes. Is is there exploring going on beyond the LGBT just because of lack of access? For example, you have 17, 18-year-olds in the States, for example, or in secular culture. They have access to the opposite sex. So it might be, well, I have no idea, more confusing or less confusing, but they have access and options. Whereas in from gap year programs, everything's separated so do you think there's more same-sex exploration than, than you'd have in a co-ed environment that doesn't implicate necessarily long-term LGBT affiliation? My guess is no. But again, I'm saying we don't have numbers on this. And so it's, it's guessing. I have not, it, and I, I, my kids call me the secret keeper of Jerusalem or the secret keeper of Katzebel. Like I know everybody's secrets, right? Or I mean, at least that's why we're their secrets with me, right? <laughs> I have not, I have not had anybody tell me that there's like this phenomenon going on or that, oh, go to that school because that's where you're going to have this. And then everybody pretends like it ever happened. Like, is it possible it's happening and nobody's telling me? For sure. Is it possible that it's happening and other professionals know about it and I don't? For sure. I have not. Is it possible that there's some exploration happening? For sure. Is it possible that, that exploration would be happening even if they were, they were at NYU? Yeah. Meaning even if they were at a, you know, a co-ed sec a secular institution, I don't get the sense that there's anything rampant like that going on. Again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. hundred percent. I just don't get the feeling that that's what's going on. Do I know that there are definitely same-sex relationships going on? For sure. Like that I, there was one year, I cannot explain why or how this happened, but within a, I think it was like a two month period, three from girls came out to me. It was like one after another. You know, over the years, lots of people have come out, but, but it was like this very sort of intense, and they're all from good. Like, it could be your friend, it could be your daughter. It's not like some weirdo that's out there. Like, they're normal. There's just this one thing that makes them feel, oh my God, what's wrong with me, you know? And of course, there also, there's all kinds of implications because if they're from and they know they're gay, so what do they do about SNES? What do they do about Nagia? What do they do about having roommates? Meaning very often there's an assumption that like, 
let's say I'm a woman and I have a gay roommate. So like, oh gosh, I should watch myself. She's going to like jump me. That's not what happens. Like almost ever. Usually the concern is on the behalf of the gay person saying, I don't want to make her feel uncomfortable. And if I'm from, what am I supposed to do about like walking around in a towel? Like we would think, oh, it's different in front of girls than guys. That's why we don't have guy roommates. But if you're gay and you're from and you think about these things, so the question that on on the same side of the mechitza, what if this distracts me? Meaning a lot of them are like very wholesome, in some ways, innocent, thoughtful questions. It's not so much about sort of like, you know, the down and dirty stuff. It's more about like, how do I figure out how to navigate of from life, knowing this thing about me. And then do relationships happen? For sure. They're definitely happening. Are there support groups for them? Yeah. Do they have meetups? Yeah. Are they here in Israel? Yeah. Are they at YU? Yeah. Are they in Toro? Yeah. It's definitely there. The question is like, does it matter? If it does, why does it matter? What does anybody want to do about it or not do about it? Like, those are the questions. I don't think it's a question of, is it happening? Are there any indicators of someone pre-gap year to show signs or red flags for a parent that maybe they should hold off for the gap year or eliminate it as an option completely for the Mm -hmm. safety of their kid? It's a really, it's a really hard question to answer because let's say you have a kid who really, really needs structure. So when you go to Israel for the year, there's definitely much less structure than there was in high school. And even if you have a curfew, it's not the same as having a parent making sure that you're home. And if they tell you to go to class, it's not the same thing as, you know, being graded in high school. Like there's definitely less structure. So if you have a kid who doesn't do well with that structure, do you send them to Israel or do you not? And I don't know how to make that, how to give an answer on a general basis, because sometimes what that kid needs is actually to be thrown into the deep end of less structure and figure out, whoa, like how do I find my bearings, and it might be really hard and it might be an uphill battle, but but that time they get to Pesach or Shavuos, the parents are like, oh my God, I don't even recognize this kid. Like he's doing so well, he figured it out. And then other kids in the same circumstance might be just like totally drowning. So I don't think it's fair for me to give any kind of like generalized answer. I think you need to know your kid. I think you need to ask the school very serious questions about things like structure, and supervision? Are there protocols if you're concerned about something like to refer to, you know, what we were talking about before, if there's like something that just rubs you the wrong way as a parent, you know, what, what's the protocol in the school? If this is a kid who has struggled with independence before, and I don't mean to put, to throw the parents under the bus, but I would say if you as the parent are having more of a hard time with your kid being independent than your kid is, then maybe the red flag is about the parent and not about the kid. Meaning there are a lot of parents that really, really, really struggle with that transition of like post 12th grade and whatever happens next. And sometimes it's the kid, but sometimes it's the kid responding to the parenting. And like, we actually don't want to hold on to our, I mean, we do, of course we want to hold on to our kids forever, but it's not good for them. What are some of the negative aspects to having that FaceTime access to parents? Let's say it's, the afternoon and lunch is being served. And I really don't like the lunch that it's being served. And I happen to FaceTime with my mom or I call her Dafka to complain about it. And I'm just like in a mood and I'm like, oh, I'm starving and there's nothing to eat. And lunch is so gross and just a crutch. And then I hang up. Maybe I find lunch. Maybe I don't find lunch. My mom is now spending the rest of her day 
totally stressed about me being miserable, about me being starving, worrying about all kinds of things about me. Meanwhile, I found a snack. I found a meal. I found a something. I moved on with my day and I'm having the best time with my friends. But the mom doesn't know that. The mom only knows what she saw on the FaceTime where I'm like fetching and, you know, miserable and starving. And so one of the downsides is it is constant communication, except it's not all day. And I'm not advocating for all day. That would kind of be a disaster if we had like nanny cams in, in the programs here. But they only get a snippet. And very often the snippet is not the great stuff. Like you call your mom to complain, you call your dad to complain, and then you hang up and then you sort it out. But your parents are still sitting there with the complaints sitting on their, on their shoulders or on their necks or whatever. So that, that's like one downside. I think the parents don't necessarily see that the kid has like recovered from whatever thing there's been. I think there's also a tendency to be as parents, especially with our kids 6,000 miles away, we want to like take care of them and we want to make things easier for them and we want to fix things for them. So if something's going wrong, I don't know, something happens in, I, I don't know, the, my daughter's, you know, shower is broken and it hasn't been fixed for a day and a half. So I might call the administration and say like, what the heck is going on? Why can't you fix my daughter's shower? That's gross. She can't be without a shower for two days. But then they might be responding to the mom and then the kid never learns to advocate for themselves. So if my mom doesn't know that my shower hasn't been working for two days, I have to be the one to go find the madricha or the aim by it or whoever is in charge of those things. And I have to figure out how to navigate advocating for myself. But very often, if my mom knows I have six classes to run to and I'm running late and this and the other thing, she'll say, don't worry about it. I'll call them. I'll take care of it. Again, it comes from a place of total love, total love. But it's robbing the kid of the opportunity to flex that muscle and to learn the skill of advocating for themselves. So that's like another, you know, like 20 years ago when there weren't all these uh, you, your kid's shower broke, your kid's shower didn't break, you had no idea. And if it did break and they wanted to fix it, the kid had to figure out how to get it fixed. So those are some of the, the downsides, I think. And I'm just going to say one more thing, which is just like there's a lot of emphasis on like the visible and the external. And so, you know, there is a lot of experimentation going on when they're here for the year. They're actually developmentally supposed to be experimenting. It's part of the growing up process. It's literally called individuation because they're figuring out who they are individually, separate and apart from their parents, not to God forbid, completely isolate from their parents, but they have to figure out who they are, right? Like as their own individual. So there's a lot of experimenting. I'm going to do my hair this way. I'm going to do my hair that way. I'm going to wear my sleeves this long. I'm going to wear my sleeves this short. I'm going to only wear a white button down. I'm going to wear a blue polo, whatever it might be. And if the parents see that in FaceTime and they comment on it, you don't know where that comment is going to sit with the kid. Maybe it's just a coincidence that that's the shirt they were wearing today. Maybe it's not a coincidence and they're experimenting and they're seeing what works for them and they're finding their way. But because it's, it's so visible and it's so sort of like quantifiable almost, you know, that might also inhibit the, the kids. I keep calling them kids because they really start as kids, but God willing, they'll be the adult. It might inhibit their, their ability to sort of chart their own course and find, find their place on their journey. That's like a little cheesy, but. So for anyone who hasn't been exposed to drugs, whether they are, Hardcore or softcore, I don't know what the mm -hmm. opposite is. Are there instances where you have someone who comes from a good family, stable upbringing, good inclinations, and then somehow gets involved in something? Not to say that drinking is not as dangerous, but drinking is not illegal if you're 18 and you show up in Israel and it's a culture mm -hmm. shock. So is there that dynamic or anyone who ends up turning to illegal substances has some sort of indicator 
or past or exposure? So I hesitate to answer that because I'm not a substance specialist at all. I think most people don't end up in that space of just like really sort of sad, hard for stuff by saying, huh, I wonder what heroin is like. I don't think that's how it happens. People don't start with heroin. Right, right, right. So, so what was the first thing that got me to try the thing that got me to try the next thing that got me to the next place? I don't know for better or for worse, whether this is like a depressing fact or this is like, you know, a chesed to destigmatize. We all know really, really great families that have somebody that's struggling with something. It's like no, no longer a surprise or no longer should be a surprise. To clarify, the question wasn't if they come from a good family. Maybe I said good family, but I meant their personal life was stable until then. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. You know, like there's a lot of stuff going on Do inside a person that we don't know. That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good kids sometimes experiment and good kids sometimes don't. And good kids sometimes give in to peer pressure and good kids sometimes don't. And everyone's a good I mean, kid. It, it, yeah, it's <laughs> sort of like I'm, I'm sort of like cheating with that answer, right? But you totally are. <laughs> again, I would feel like a phony if I gave you an absolute, like right. I would be lying, you know? Any closing remarks or messages out there for parents or perhaps adults who have had complicated experiences with their gap year and they're projecting that onto their kids or nervous to project that onto their kids? We know times have changed. What? ideas do you have and thoughts to share with them? Here's one of the things that I think is as close to universal as we're going to get. And I think this applies to adolescents. And I think this applies to, you know, quote unquote, real grownups. I think one of the greatest fears we all share is like a fear of being judged, a fear of rejection. I think judgmental is sort of like the biggest one. And we know that it's one of the big inhibitors for why people don't report when they've been victimized, for why kids don't open up to their parents, for why people might hold in some of their real dark stuff, even if they're very close friendships. A lot of that comes back to a fear of being judged. The year in Israel is a time of so much growth, God willing, God willing, God willing, if it goes well, and a lot of change and a lot of just figuring stuff out. And I think there's a lot of fear of being judged by the parent, justified or not. You might be the most open-minded, tolerant, loving parents on the face of the earth. Your kid might still be afraid that you're going to judge them. And so one, I would say like all of us, myself included, need to constantly be checking ourselves. Am I being judgy? Am I being judgy? Whether I'm aware of it or not. And those of us who feel confident enough to say like, no, I don't think my kid would fear me being judgy. It's still on us to like really go over and above about, I will always love you no matter what. I'm not always going to love your choices, but I always love you. Nothing you could ever do short of, I don't know, murder could ever, you know, jeopardize our relationship. You know, those kinds of things, because some of the hardest stuff to share is some of the stuff that parents will say, why didn't you tell me? Well, because the answer is like some of that's the hardest stuff to share. And so if I, if I don't know how you're going to react and I'm really nervous that you're going to react in a way that's going to be really hurtful, I'd rather just not share it with you. And of course, that not sharing breeds all kinds of distance and, you know, walls between us and, and isolation or stuff like that. And I, I say this to the adolescents that I work with all the time, same way that you don't want to be judged by your parents. You cannot judge your parents. Check your judgment on them. Why are you being judgy about them? Where are you being judgy about them? It's definitely both ways. 
But as the parents, I think it's important to know that that's, I, I think that's one of the greatest fears that a lot of the kids slash budding emerging adults have is as they're trying to figure themselves out, not being made to, fool, to feel foolish about it. it. Whatever it is, whether it's what they're wearing or where they're diving or who they're dating or whatever it might be. What about the religious component, the brainwashing or your kid is going to come home and say nothing you do is right or kosher, unfortunately, when it happens the other way around. Here's where I can speak to some data. There's actually some really interesting research on that. There's like research on the phenomenon of flipping out and trying to understand like, why does it happen? And how does it happen? And all that stuff. And there's some really interesting variables that they were able to isolate. Like, why do kids not flip out in high school, but they flip out in Israel, right? Like you're exposed to great teachers, you're exposed to great educational material. And some of it is when you're in high school, you have all kinds of other pressures. There's no such thing as learning lishma. It's almost always for the sake of a grade or a point or a something. Whereas you come to Israel and it's really just learning to satisfy your curiosity and your thirst and whatever. It's a fundamentally different type of learning. When you're in high school, there are all kinds of other things competing for your time. Extracurriculars, the debate team, the basketball team, the chesed committee, whatever it might be. Helping at home, setting the table, babysitting, whatever the thing might be. Whereas when you come to Israel for the year, this is your job. Like your job is learn and figure yourself out all day, every day. And so it's a much more immersive environment. There's all kinds of stuff about faculty. There's all kinds of different variables that they figured out. So one of the things to think about as parents is like, it's not that they're being brainwashed. It's that, well, some of them might be, I can't speak to everybody, right? But the vast majority of them are not being brainwashed like they're a bunch of softies. The vast majority of them are just experiencing a fundamentally different educational, emotional, intellectual, spiritual experience in a fundamentally different environment. And that is a different impact. Like if you try to meditate, if you're like a meditating person, you try to meditate in your kitchen while all of your kids are eating breakfast, or you go out to the beach at six o'clock in the morning when no one's there and you meditate there, you know it's a fundamentally different experience. If you play guitar in your bedroom or if you go to an amazing concert, it's a fundamentally different experience. And so I think rather than accusing schools of brainwashing, I think one thing is to understand why it's happening to have a curiosity about it. If your kid comes home and says, you know, I used to do this, but now I'm doing that. Instead of rolling your eyes and saying like, you know, you're totally brainwashed. Say, oh, how did you come to that conclusion? Like, where did you learn that? Like, can we learn that safer together? Which teacher told you? Just a curiosity. And then it becomes much less accusatory. And there's that judgment piece. And, and maybe the kid ultimately will change their mind and, and do what you do. Maybe they won't, but, but it will be in a much nicer, sort of less antagonistic way. And... Again, to their credit, a lot of the schools, not all of them, and some of them are better than others, but a lot of the schools put, and, and this is one of the changes, I think, a large emphasis on you are not your parents' baby. Like, do not paskin for your parents. Whatever they're doing in their kitchen, it's their kitchen. It's none of your business. Whatever your father is wearing or your mother's wearing, or whoever, it's none of your business. Not all the schools teach that, and some of them do it better than others, but but I also think that's an important part of it. It's part of the educational process of you don't want to be judged by your parents. So don't judge your parents. You don't want them criticizing your religious decisions. So how dare you criticize theirs? And that's part of growing up and maturity. And that's what we want 17, 18, 19 year olds to be doing. We want them to be thoughtful adults. So I think that's also an important part of it. This was so enlightening and fun. I was so happy. I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Aviva, for coming on. If anyone wants to reach out to you, how can they find you? I'm not on all of the things, but I'm on some of the things. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, both as 
Dr. Aviva Goldstein. My website is avivagoldstein.com. So you can like message me on there. And my email address is drvivagoldstein at gmail.com. Those are the best ways to reach me. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening until the end. Please make sure to follow the show, rate, review it, share it with your friends and family. And of course, join the WhatsApp group. You can message me to get added. Check out the other episodes on jewishcoffeehouse.com. And I'm Francisca. I help you with your podcasts. So make sure to reach out if that's something you're looking to start. Have a great week. <laughs>